You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Welcome back. It's episode 59 of Grow Yourself Up. And today I am joined by author and coach and hypnotherapist uh, Sophie Birch. So Sophie, who is known on Instagram as the Mama Coach, is on a mission to put mental and emotional well-being more on the map in pregnancy, birth, and parenting. She has 17 years' experience as a mother to four boys, including twins, and she's a perinatal therapist and coach and a birth trauma and, and postnatal depression survivor. Her experience has shaped who she is and awakened her to a life of compassion and deep empathy for everyone from preconception through parenting to menopause. Her approach is simple to allow people to feel held and heard, safe and worthy of love and self-acceptance. Sophie believes that our strength comes from self-compassion, kindness and knowledge, which is her ethos. She um, launched her book, Beyond Birth, A Mindful Guide for Early Parenting in 2020, which is an integration of all she knows. And this book is available as a published book on Amazon, as an e-book, an audio book, and is also available via parent and baby support sessions and a practitioner training course. She's a trainer and team member at PMH Training CIC, and she offers online and in-person coaching, one-to-one groups, and she's very happy to talk about her work experience at events and on podcasts. So you can find Sophie on Instagram at The Mama Coach, and all her details will be in the show notes. Okay, let's dive in. So why don't we start off a bit by um, you telling us about your journey to motherhood, about your kiddies, whatever feels relevant there. Thanks, Kaz. I have really looked forward to this conversation. So thank you so much for inviting me to share with you and your audience. What I do as The Mama Coach is my why in terms of the support that I offer out to parents um, because of the, the lack of support that I had on my journey into and throughout parenting. Um, so to begin with my story um, into parenthood, um, in my early 20s, I uh, diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and then I had a large fibroid cyst removed from my right fallopian tube that they said, Probably I would never conceive from that side. Oh, wow. And in fact, the, the specialist that I was seeing at the time said, 
it's going to be really hard for you to get pregnant. And, and in fact, you're most likely going to need to have IVF and, and only then, you know, you don't really ovulate and lots of the, the, you know, the eggs that you produce are cysts. So it's going to be very difficult to conceive. Um, so I took that one away. I, I had actually got the information to be told. Oh, wow. Yeah. And also, um, I will share with you that I had had an abortion, um, two years previously. Um, so that obviously brought up a lot for me because I thought, what if I can never conceive again? I was very young. I was still in my early twenties, but suddenly my future looked very different. And, and, you know, a lot of the sadness uh, around having to have that abortion. I was 19 at the time was it was really hard to cope with and there was nobody to hold me at that time at was all. Was there no support around even at the clinic? No, I went I was on my own, very, very much in that. So when I met my now husband, which was fast forward about four or five years later after I'd known about that, I very rarely had periods um I just was all over the place and and I said to him when when we started to realize things were quite serious between us I said look I probably can't give you kids and he just shrugged and he said that's cool we'll adopt no problem nine months into the relationship we found out we were pregnant wow and we'd only been together for nine months but we were being a bit reckless really because I thought I couldn't get pregnant he was just like whatever and yeah we probably should have been a little bit more careful but I fell pregnant um, and I was living in Brighton. He was living in London. I spent six months of that pregnancy, the first six months on my own. Um, I worked uh, as a production coordinator in feature films and um, the, the producers that I worked for were horrendous to me. They were trying, it was constructive con- dismissal. They were trying to get rid of me the whole time, but I had to hang in there because they owed me money on certain films and I had to get through I had to deliver certain films in order to be able to get my money. And so I stuck it out for six months on my own in Brighton. And it was actually very traumatic. It was a traumatic pregnancy. I was terrified I was going to lose my baby throughout the whole time. I just thought, it, it's going to happen. I'm just, it's, this baby's not going to last. You know, uh, This pregnancy isn't going to last. And it was a really difficult time. Again, very much on my own. Mm, no support at all. My parents lived abroad. Um, and you know, as much as I love them very much, they're not particularly, uh, you know, there for me. They, they, they don't really know how to be. They never have done. Um, I went to boarding school for 10 years of my life and, and it has just been like that in our family. But so I really was alone apart from my, you know, my boyfriend, who is now my husband, who, who was as caring and tender as he could be, but, you know, equally going, Oh my God, I mean, he just met her and we're, we're having a baby. I mean, you know, I did think he was going to run a mile and he didn't. He said, you've just made me the happiest man alive. So, you know, that was it. I was like, you're a keeper. That's for sure. <laughs> Six months in, I moved into London with him. Um, having said I would never move back to London because I love my life in Brighton. It was, I just had to. Um, I had to quit my career and I just found myself a temping job for the next couple of months um, to tide me over while we got settled. Living together, it was the first time we'd lived together and we knew within a couple of months we were going to be bringing a baby into our arms. That was exciting on the one hand, but terrifying as well. 
And we really had to get to know each other in a way that, you know, we, we still didn't really have sort of open, honest conversations. We'd not really seen the bad side of each other at all, you know. Um, so that was, it was interesting. And he was having to deal with a, a particularly hormonal me. And what I'd gone through in that pregnancy with my, with my work, with my, um, my bosses, um, the, you know, having to be on my own, which was very triggering because I had significant trauma from being at boarding school age seven and feeling rejected, unloved, all of those things. Um, being on my own and having to deal with that was really hard for me, but equally I knew I could do it because I knew I was strong enough and, you know, I kind of had to prove to myself as well that that I had it in me. If I, you know, I'm like I'm always on my own. My mum used to say to me, "You're the strong one. You're fine." You know, and that's hard. And also that um, that thing about often this comes up in therapy that we're hyper independent or we're very good at doing everything by ourselves and we don't ask for help. Um, and that's often because that's how we had to survive as children. That there was no one to give us help. And that we had to be the one who grew up and looked after ourselves. And I think that's a real issue in motherhood, actually, when we have that coping strategy, because often there's so much shame as well that actually at some point we need to ask for help because help has been so shamed. Or our human needs have been shamed, actually. I think for me, it wasn't necessarily shame, it was sadness. It's just this sense of sadness, this heavy heartedness, this feeling, you know, very much like that vulnerable little girl again in lots of ways but yeah Phil did his best for me and you know I, I'm really grateful to him but giving birth to Oli was a very traumatic experience so we'd done an NCT course um didn't really take on board very much of the information we met a great great bunch of people there um but I didn't really learn any relaxation techniques I didn't learn any breathing techniques I I just didn't really know what was coming what to expect um I remember my mother saying to me oh it's like crapping a watermelon so you know make sure you ask for the pethidin because that's the really good stuff you know well nothing practical about how to actually no 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 <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm making my mom sound really bad I mean she's she's not all bad but it you know it's it's when these things are highlighted, isn't it, that you just sort of see how it is. Yeah, so I, I gave birth to Ollie, but nearly lost him. He was born completely flatline. Um, he, he'd got stuck um, and we, they had to form a shoulder dystocia procedure on me. Um, and he was he, his heart had stopped for three minutes. Um, they resuscitated him in front of me and whisked, whisked him very fast off into um, neonatal intensive care, leaving me completely shocked. Um, and I had a psychotic moment, I now know, at that point, but then nobody, everybody else in the room was shocked as well. But I thought he'd died. Um, and I went into, into shock and, thought, and, and at that point thought, yeah, you see, I was never meant to have a baby. I was never meant to have a baby. They told me I couldn't have a baby and look what's happened. I should never have even tried. You know, all of those thoughts. So you sort of blamed yourself, it sounds like. Yeah, it was huge. Um, my mother was there in the room that they'd moved her and my husband over to the other side of the room when they all jumped on me to do the procedure. It was very violent. Um, and the people that had performed that procedure were all very shaken, 
afterwards as well. So it's pretty traumatic for everybody in the room, really. Um, amazingly, all did really, really well. Um, and he came through. I was in hospital for a week. Um, I remember pacing the corridors, just trying to get to him as much as I could. Uh, but I remember on day five, just completely losing the plot and screaming at the staff to give me my baby because they kept having the the doctors doing the rounds and it was around Christmas time. He was born Christmas Eve. So it was between Christmas and New Year we were there. And I just, I still remember that feeling of just like, give me my baby. Just let me have him. Like he needs to be with me. And there was always these, these barriers in front of me that would stop me from being able to be with him. Um, and it really traumatized me in a really, really big way. And for him as well, not to be, um, you know, not to let you be in the NICU with him. Yes, exactly. And I remember also that was something I did scream as well. I was like, he needs me. Um, and day six, they let him come into my, into my, my room with me. Um, and he did so well in that 24 hours, so incredibly well that they were like, you can go home. We went home and I didn't hear from anybody. They'd got the notes mixed up, so we didn't have any visits from any midwives. We Nobody came to see us. Bearing in mind, I'd just had this really traumatic experience and I had stitches and I, it was like, it, yeah, like after a few weeks, we, we were just like, maybe somebody should have come to see us. That first year was really challenging but I had I brought out my old sort of coping strategies of just like over coping being being super busy I focused on setting up my business um you know I, I just got on with things tried to connect in the community as much as possible um found that very therapeutic I was running baby massage classes and you know that in itself was wonderful in so many ways but I was so dissociated it was insane um and I couldn't feel I was numbed out um and it was around his first birthday that I um I looked at him and thought did they offer you any um you know to process the 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 shoulder dystopia um uh pr procedure for him or did you did, did no one offer any therapy or I guess EMDR wasn't a big thing at that point either. Not such a big thing. No, there was no follow-up. No follow-up. <laughs> it just was like, yes, why I do what I do now. Really, really do see the, you know, the need for, for more follow-up and tender, loving care and support. And, you know, especially when, you know, things don't go to plan, which is more often than not, you know, when, when birth happens. And I think what's about dissociation. We very, I'm very pleased that we are focusing more on rage and motherhood and, and those feelings, but dissociation is also, um, you know, part of our survival states. And so I think a lot of, we need to pay a lot of attention to that actually, because many of us dissociate because that's how we kept ourselves safe in childhood. And that kind of level of disconnection also needs a lot of attention, you know, but it's not, um, it's not really yet in the public domain in terms of being discussed a lot. Yeah. And, you know, even, even the, the GPs that everybody's going to don't necessarily know what they're working with. You know, they don't really know how, you know, how to refer on and where to, et cetera. Most things is like, here you are, here's some medication and 
you know, go and learn some mindfulness or go, you know, get, let's book you into some talking therapy. But, you know, the thing is, it's even with talking therapy, you need to be booked in with people who have the right experience. So I, around one year, I, I came crashing back down to earth is kind of the way I see it. It felt like that. It felt like suddenly everything went boom. And I was just a heap on the floor, looked at all for the first time and went, oh my God, hello. And then my husband and, and I'd seen my mother as well had said, you're not yourself. You're just not you. And you, you know, you need to go and talk to somebody. And I spoke to um, a psychotherapist who said, yeah, you definitely need to go. Um, it wasn't a formal uh, session. It was a friend. So she said, definitely go and um, go and try and get some help. So I went to my GP who said, oh, you've got, um, you've got depression. Uh, here's some sertraline and we'll book you into some CBT. And it was six months before I got the CBT. And actually the person that saw me was absolutely brilliant. What they did just had no experience with perinatal um mental health okay just didn't you know and it is a you know we know now and it was trauma more than depression but i ended up being depressed as a result of the ongoing trauma that i was experiencing so yes there was not one mention of birth trauma there was nobody that 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 you know that that said this is ptsd and it, it really was i was having terrible flashbacks i couldn't go near the hospital um, I'd had to take Ollie back for a few few checks, and it was awful. It was so so bad. Yeah, and you know I've had years of processing that. What really helped you? Because I think our listeners will be really eager to know what what helped you with with PTSD and kind of learning that it's not going on now. Well, I've had I've got CPTSD. I've had layers of trauma. So after Ollie's birth, also there was there was more, um, and actually before Ollie's birth, there was, which was another reason why I was perhaps more susceptible to experiencing, you know, trauma at a, I would say, a deeper level in some ways. So it's what's happened is that I have found a way through it by learning to help others through, but equally helping myself at the same time. So, so I'm now trained. In, in, you know, PTSD and resilience training with, you know, in CBT. I, I work with people all the time who, who have experienced similar situations or more. And the, the compassion focused approach that I take, the, you know, the, the empathy in some ways as well, even though obviously we have to try to take care of ourselves when we're in the trenches too much with people that's, you know, it can be hard, but um, what gets me through is practicing what I preach. And I have to do that every single day. It's a work in progress for sure. Um, but I have certainly really worked hard on building my emotional resilience over the years. And sharing my story is, it's never easy. It's not the easy path, but knowing that by doing so it's not only helping me but it is helping others potentially is huge so that well-meaning activity um i think also kind of looking at my in spite of story has helped enormously so looking at that narrative and and rather than focusing on 
the narrative of all that went wrong. It's more of recognizing that from those experiences, I have learned, I've grown, I, you know, I've achieved, I've done so much that I never dreamt I could possibly do. And that, that is really hopeful. So it gives me hope and helps me to, to actually recognize that the, the qualities and the characteristics that it's given me, the values that I have are all because of that experience and those experiences. And it's what drives my passion and my mission to, to bring emotional well-being practices to all parents perinatally and, and parents onwards. You know, it's, it's not an easy path doing this work, but equally it's tremendously healing and rewarding in so many ways as well. So my, my journey into motherhood yes. was really fraught in lots of ways. Yeah. It was never as I had imagined it to be. As we all <laughs> find out the hard way in that way, I think most of us. But there's so much grief. You, I mean, you had a particularly challenging journey into motherhood, but I think um, for nearly everyone, there's so many layers of grief around the journey and how different it was and how different we expected it to be. And um, yeah, thank you for naming that because I think it's, it's such a, the loss of what you hoped for is so profound. Yeah, it is. I, I do talk about that as, as a grief and a loss a lot of the time. And it's not what we, you know, we, we don't see that one coming and it feels like bereavement in so many ways. Tell us about your other children. Yeah. So, so Milo came along two and a half years later. Um, and I, at the time, so I was busy working in the community with, with people in pregnancy and new parents, so antenatally, postnatally running classes. Um, and loving, loving that so much and, uh, felt ready to try again for another baby. Milo came along and I had done a hypnobirthing course as well. And so what I wanted to do, what I recognized was that going into the hospital for me was not necessarily where I felt safe. The first time round, my mind had gone to a place where I I had sort of almost reenacted every negative birth story I'd ever heard or seen. You know, it just, my nervous system was definitely in the sympathetic side when I was having all. I mean, I'm amazed that, it, you know, that I was able to give birth to him vaginally because actually, you know, from what I know about how oxytocin works and how, how contractions work, I shouldn't actually have been having any contractions at all because I was like yeah should have like been held in like that yeah but so so what I decided was that I needed to try to have my baby at home uh I had a lot of work to do in that pregnancy I had therapy again in that pregnancy um to to process what had happened before because I actually hadn't really got to that point properly so I saw somebody um, who who was absolutely amazing hypnotherapy again, um, which is why I now I'm trained as a hypnotherapist too, um, hypno CBT, and I just found it really, really incredible to learn that mind body connection, to understand you know a bit more about the subconscious part of our mind, how we can work with it um, to have better experiences essentially. 
So I had had a bit of a bit of an issue with the um the hospital wanting me to go in there because I'd had the shoulder dystocia about the first time. So I had to do some research and take it with me and go, actually no, um it doesn't mean that I'm gonna have another big baby or another shoulder dystocia at all. There's no proof of that. But they were straight away they were like, No, 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 you're gonna have to come in and you know and I said, and actually at the time as well, I, I was thinking, do I just put myself in for a C-section? Because I really don't want to go through that again. That, you know, that was really out of the fear was there. Um, but but after doing the hypnobirthing, I really felt a lot more equipped. I felt like I understood it all so much. I really worked through what had gone wrong and why. And I felt kind of excited about trying at home. And and so eventually the, uh, the, the the midwife said, "All right, fine. You know, you're close enough to to the hospital anyway. I wasn't far away." Um, and my husband joked and said, "Look, I can put pop her in a wheelbarrow and bring her around any time if you need." It's like really okay. <laughs> so we um we got our home birth, and they sent two incredible community midwives to us who I remember to this day, who were just astoundingly brilliant and hands-off. And, and I, I had my know using hypnobirthing techniques and I didn't need any pain relief. I really genuinely didn't. He was 10 pounds too. Oh, my word. But he didn't get stuck. Well. <laughs> and we had a beautiful birth. And um, it, yeah, it, it was really healing. It was really, really healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, uh, just think about from a nervous system point of view, our context is so important and knowing our context sends us such signs of safety. And it sounds like, wow, the fact that you were in your own environment and you had two wonderful, really holding, supportive women to help you through it. Wow. What, is, what a huge difference. Yes. And my husband too. I couldn't have done that without him. He was so loving and tender and focused on me and just really mind-blowingly amazing in so many ways and um yeah I definitely I've thought on it so many times and you know I've taught hypnobirthing for I don't know what 16 odd years 17 years now and it you know it's the story that I tell people because it's just so important that depth of connection that feeling of safety being in your cave that you know being to be able to be uninhibited and not feel judged and not feel like I had to had to form in some way that, that you know which is how I had felt completely when I'd gone to the hospital and as you say my my things around me and yeah and also to be able to make the noises you need to make and you know like guttural noises or things that might be inadvertent commas unfamiliar you know what I mean all of that kind of like loud noises and letting your body do what it needed to Definitely. I was mooing. I was really mooing. <laughs> it was amazing. Milo was born and everything was fine for a moment. And then one thing I hadn't mentioned about all is that Ollie had, um, he had colic, really bad colic and reflux. And that was really tough because he was high stressed. His, obviously his cortisol levels were through the roof, you know, and he was so, he was a really disorganized, uncomfortable baby for a long time. And that had been very, very difficult to, to cope with. Milo came along and I thought he's had the most beautiful birth. Everything's going to be brilliant. And, you know, off we go. And very, very quickly, I was like, uh oh, here we go. And it was uh, silent reflux again. 
And he was so uncomfortable and he would scream and scream and scream. I mean, it just felt like it was forever. And it brought everything yes. really fast. Yeah. And you know, when you're in that postnatal period and the oxytocin levels drop and then the tiredness kicks in because the lack of sleep. And I had another little one, you know, I had Ollie to look after as well. He was two and a half. Wow. And suddenly it's like, oh, wow. And and no help other than my, my friends. My husband was working really hard, bless him. And, you know, that, that, so that was really tough, I, you know, and, and I felt just so disappointed. I remember just feeling so disappointed and blaming myself at that point. Then it was like the blame. I'm, I'm doing something wrong. There must be something that I'm doing wrong. It's obviously to do with me. Um, and that was hard. And I think that there's so much, I mean, because there's so much suffering already and having, um, very, the babies who are very highly sensitive or have very kind of sensitive nervous systems and, Need a lot of help, and then we sort of that that really active inner critic and the everything's my fault type of thing. It just makes the suffering so much worse, doesn't it? it absolutely does. And I wasn't equipped at that time to be able to recognise those thoughts for what they were. But I, you know, there were times when I, like in that first year with all, where the irrational thoughts were were so much that it was terrifying, and and I didn't know what to do with those thoughts, you know. Um, I'd had them through periods of my life beforehand, through, you know, traumatic episodes in my life. I, I, I definitely had suicidal thoughts, ideation around su- suicide for sure. You know, it was born from deep sadness, feeling of loss, rejection, feeling unloved, unwanted, not needed, and useless, feeling useless. And so all of that was coming up again. Um, and certainly with Milo, there were times when his crying got so much that I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to either run away or shake him. There were just times I thought I was going to shake him. I didn't, but I was so close to it so many times. Just, you know, and how, oh my God, how awful I then felt afterwards that I'd even considered it. That it was just like, oh gosh, so much. And I, Getting through that made me think, right, I really, really am not alone in this. I know that there are other people out there who are feeling exactly how I am and they're too terrified to talk about it. I remember not being able to share anything with any of the health visitors or, you know, anything. You know, I was just like, they take my baby away from me for sure. If I, if I really say how I feel, even in my therapy sessions when I was having CBT beginning, there was no way I could have shared what 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 had gone on in here for sure i know and i think that i really i'm I'm glad you raised that because i think that i also had a lot of suicidal thoughts in um in motherhood and i've in some sense have continued to have some of them um and i think that's so much about if we if we put a nervous system lens over that you know early motherhood and like having a crying baby all the time sends so many signs of danger to us so we are going to plunge into dorsal into shutdown and in that place, in a dorsal shutdown place, suicidal ideation is is like one of the things that happens. There's so much shame. There's so much disconnection. And there's that terrible feeling of like, I'm the only one. And and you're right. We're never the only one. And when you get through that and you see that, that, you know, that realization is very healing in itself. Yeah. And I made a pledge to myself that I was going to help more people at that point in time. I was just like, I've got to do more. I'm I'm already in the community. I'm already 
you know, I've got parents coming through the door all the time to my classes. I need to do more though. So I trained at that point, you know, when I was feeling a bit better, I, I trained in hypnotherapy. Um, and then a few years later, my husband had lost his job in the recession in 2008, just after that recession. And he was unemployed for 18 months. And that's happened twice in the last 18 years, 19 years I've been with him. And it significantly impacted his mental health. And it was, Milo was six months old, I think, and and, uh, and Phil lost his job and he couldn't find another job. And so we were, we'd sold our house. We were literally about to sign on the dotted line um, and move. We were going to move into the countryside to be near a family um, and hope that we could find more work. And yeah, we just couldn't afford to stay in London, essentially. And he got a job literally the day before we were about to exchange contract on the sale of our house. Um, but that period of time was really, really tough. But because he was home, it enabled me to focus on more training and really digging deep into my business. And that was actually a real blessing, but very, very tough for him. And financial strain for us was huge. We then even though he'd got the work in London, we'd already sort of put the wheels into motion to move out of London. So we we went and did that anyway. And as we were moving out of London, um, and this was a, a, a little while later, but as we were moving out of London, um, we got to Wiltshire where we moved to first. Um, and three weeks later, I'm saying, I really feel unwell. I feel almost narcoleptic. I'm so tired. There's got to be something wrong with me. We'd experienced a miscarriage um, about six months before, and we'd said, right, we're not going to try for any more babies. We just, we're done, we're fine. We've got two little boys, we're very happy, that's not a problem. Somehow we'd managed to get pregnant. Um, it was the leaving London party and not, leave, not really remembering <laughs> going to bed where that had happened, and neither of us had even, yeah. What do you remember? This was how you make children. Oh, I can't even remember. Anyway, um, we made the twins. And and, uh, yeah, that pregnancy was fraught with worry as well because once we found out we were pregnant, then we found out we were pregnant with twins. We were also at the same time then found out that we had twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. And we the placenta was deficient. Um, at providing both of them with what they need. So we had one twin was getting too much of everything and it was putting the heart under a lot of pressure. And we had another twin who was not thriving, who was not getting what they needed. Um, so we spent the rest of pregnancy having weekly scans, um, having to drive over an hour and a half each week to get to the John Radcliffe in Oxford for these scans. And each time we were told that there might not be heartbeats next time. That was how they were like, look, which have got to be really honest with you. This, you know, twin to twin transfusion syndrome can be really brutal and it can be really fast. And that was really hard. <laughs> I spent that pregnancy digging really deep into all that I knew. Luckily, I had lots of tools I did. And I, and I asked for help and I got therapy and I, you know, I did what I could, but it still was really, really challenging. And, you know, there were 
procedures that we had to go through as well. And we got to 28 weeks and the sonographer that scanned us said, I think we can see a new blood vessel that has formed that is counterbalancing this blood flow. And actually, that means that you officially don't have 20-20 transfusion anymore. So my body had produced an, an extra grown, another blood vessel that was counterbalancing. It's from the placenta to the twins. It's insane how that works. I mean, isn't the body amazing? And I, you know, I'd been. Did they get to stay in longer? They did. They wanted to take them out. They'd talked about taking them out by cesarean section around about 28, 29 weeks. We were able to, I was able to keep them in for another four weeks. But the thing is, they, they'd said that it had all got better. But then the, on the other hand, they were like, but it can come back. I used to just think, just leave me alone. I want to run away into the woods, you know, up a mountain and go and free birth these babies. They're fine. I couldn't connect with the smaller twin. I, I was too scared to connect with him. I could feel the bigger twin I, and, I, and I could connect with him. But he, you know, he was just as much really at risk as, as, as the other one. But I, I, I found myself unable to, to bond with the second twin. Um, anyway, they were born by cesarean section and taken into NICU at 32 weeks. And that was really triggering because I had to go back into NICU. And equally, they were taken away from me. And the most painful experience, I think, even more than that first time with all, was that after 36 hours, they made me go home and leave the babies at hospital. They made you go home? They didn't let you move? Like, wow. No. There, there was nowhere for me to stay. And I had to go home. And I had two other little boys that needed me, right? And to recover from a, a like a, a seasick a cesarean. Well, that's pain. The hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And that trauma still sits really, really here. Um, I cannot begin to explain the pain. I mean, I've worked sadly with, with clients who've lost babies. I can only compare it to that feeling because to me at that time, it felt like I had lost them. Um, there, it, it, it just, and, and there was a, a noise that came out of me that was some sort of howling that my husband, bless him, didn't even know what to do with. And he actually didn't do it very well. He got really cross with me. He's just like, just stop. You're not doing any good by doing this. Just stop. And I, I couldn't. I just couldn't. It was all, all coming out. So I couldn't then sleep. I would go home and be wide awake all night, like expressing milk, and I'd phone the ward regularly. And every time I phoned, I kept thinking, they're going to tell me they're dead. That was, that was how I was dealing with it. So even though I had, in my pregnancy, I'd done everything I could to prepare myself for it, I, nothing could prepare me for the, the way I felt having to leave them. And, and being separated from them was just the biggest trigger for me because of my childhood issues, because of, you know, everything was just like... So re-traumatizing. Yeah. Did, did, so I just want to make clear that for anyone listening, that this is in, in, we're in the UK, so we're talking now about the NHS. Did anyone kind of notice and kind of notice how re-traumatizing it would have been for you? No. I'd asked my consultant if there was going to be a, a psychologist or in the ward, somebody there to help and NICU, and was told that there was somebody there. So I thought, okay, well, that's great. But the, there wasn't, there was nobody there. 
And, you know, what I witnessed in NICU as well was really, really heartbreaking. I bet I, I was next to some parents who lost a baby in that moment. You know, also my, my babies were on separate ends of the ward as well. They hadn't put them together. I'd, I'd asked, I'd put, you know, specific requirements. I said, please make sure they're together and please, if you can, put them in the same incubator. They need, they were on, you know, breathing support and all. You know, they didn't even put them in the same space together. And, that, and then what I was told was I was lucky that they were both in the same hospital because they might not have had enough room and I might have had one baby in one hospital and one in another. And that had been known as well. And those poor little twins, because for twins, I mean, they've been, each other, been with each other since they were embryos and they're each other's attachment figure. So the comfort of that other little body of each little brother being with each other. I mean, I know that from my twins looking at them, what a tremendous trauma that must have been for them to be split from not only you, but their little brother. I'm sorry for all of that you've had to go through, Sophie. Thanks, Kath. Yeah, it's been it's been a really, really challenging journey. And I was fought like a lioness to get them out of there. Um, I just, again, my coping strategy was just to go into like, just shut down in lots of ways dissociation. I was just getting like, you know, breast milk, like, what can they feed, you know, being really practical about everything. And, and it was like, I went into good girl mentality, actually. I was just like, look, look, I'm really good at this. They're fine, aren't they? We're fine. We can go home soon, can't we? There was one um, fairly new nurse, quite young, who I went in, in that first week that they were in the queue and I, and I went in, ran in, I would run in there and, and go right up and get to them and They'd eventually moved them together because I kicked up a bit of a fuss about it. Um, but they weren't in the same incubator, but at least they were next to each other. And she said, uh, she, she saw me about to pick one of the babies up. And she said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. You mustn't disturb them when they're sleeping. Um, and I looked at her and I just said, do you know about oxytocin? Do you know about like kangaroo care and attachment-based theory and how much they need to be on my skin? She looked at me and, and went, well, they're sleeping. We, you know, we, we don't disturb preemie babies when they're sleeping. And I literally was like a lion as I like, not to pick up my babies. This is what they need. This is the best thing. So I had lots of that to contend with where I just, it felt very us and them. Again, like which was re-triggering from the first experience when I was in NICU as well. So I've had three babies out of four in NICU, and it's another driver for me to do the work that I do to to support parents in, in you know because I I think that there there seems to be a huge glaring gap in in understanding and support for for people who are becoming parents anyway in terms of what they need. But if there are challenges that happen, then every single one of those parents, even if they're saying they're fine, needs follow-up and needs care and needs for the next two years and some. Because even after that first year, as, as I experienced, you know, th these things come, come back and sometimes it can hit you years later. And I think that every parent needs that kind of follow-up. And the added stress of NICU and prematurity probably needs more of that because what you said about, again, about the dissociation and about the good girl thing and about going to very busy, being like a busy holic or very efficient, 
facilitates even more dissociation. And so, um, and it can appear, you can craft such a kind of a shiny outward like mask, um, which then behind that all is just kind of everything's falling apart. We need so much more tenderness and cherishing of new parents in society, like really holding them um, in the bosom of society, which we just do so badly. Yeah, we've lost touch with what that looks like and feels like, really. I mean, I, I eventually got the baby's home and then had four to look after and, and the babies had silent reflux. Oh, my word. Um, so they would scream and scream and scream. And it, it was, I think that first year, I went very grey. I, I was really unwell in lots of ways. Um, but equally, I saw how resilient I was too. Um, and, you know, it was then in that first year that I started to write my book and um, thinking about support that I offer parents. So how that looked, you know, expanding what I was offering. And, and you know, that, that was actually really helpful. Like in your supports the parents and in your therapy and in your, in your I know you have a, a practitioner course as well. What is your kind of area of focus now? It's very much about nurture. So it's parenting the parent and teaching the parents to parent themselves, I think, um, is where I've landed. Because once we feel more comfortable in our skin and listening to our inner wise version, recognizing that inner child version of ourselves and what we need in terms of nurture, then we can confidently, more confidently reach out and ask for the help when we need it too. We cannot expect parents to reach out when they are in their reactivity mode, when they're very vulnerable, when they're really tired, when they're essentially just trying to please everybody. So over the years, it's just sort of developed like that. And the practitioner training that I offer enables people to run sessions for parents that's introducing very simple, very feel-good, grounding tools and techniques, exploratory kind of reflective practices, understanding different ways of thinking, you know, obviously bringing a little bit of that kind of CBT in there, just kind of recognizing cognitive distortions when they're there. Forgiveness, self-compassion, healing, kindness, self-love, self-care, those things that it, we're not necessarily taught, you know, how to do. So effectively, the people that I'm training are parenting those parents and then sharing, sharing with them how to parent themselves. And then I help the practitioners also to do the same for themselves too. So, you know, for me, it's a work in progress all the time that, you know, when we're supporting others, we need to do the same for ourselves, you know, and that also ripples out to our families and to our communities. And in some ways, it's like a complete no-brainer to me now. I'm like, I can really see how this could work. <laughs> and that's not an ego thing at all. It's not ego. It's just like, oh, well, why don't we do this? You know, but obviously there's a, there's a lot of reasons as to why we don't, um, and it's the systems as well that we have in place that don't enable that to happen. No, there's not enough, certainly not enough institutional holding. And Sophie, because if I think about, so you've really grown yourself up by becoming the mother that you needed and kind of parenting yourself. Um, what are some of the things that you've had to be really kind to yourself about and kind of to let go of um, in terms of? of yourself it's healing those ruptures when they happen 
um, regulating in a way that I was never shown how to do. Giving myself the love and compassion that I need when I am triggered, when I'm feeling like that little girl again, alone, unloved. You know, that nobody's coming. It, it's that feeling. And, and so, you know, how have I grown myself up? I've taught myself that it's okay just to, to be who I am and that actually the reason I am who I am is because of all the things that have happened to me in the past. And that enables me to be gentle, more gentle with myself than I've ever been and to recognize when I'm going into these ways of being that aren't necessarily very helpful. <laughs> but also to allow that child to be there when she needs to be as well, you know, not to suppress. Well, not to be on a show. No, and to share with my children, to be more communicative, to be more open and honest, to call it out more. You know, we use this phrase at home, verbalize it to normalize it, you know. It's powerful, and especially I've got four boys, you know, that boy, boys are taught to shut it down. Our society says shut down, do not say how you're feeling, it's not cool, you know. And hopefully that is starting to change slightly now, but. You know, there is very much still a man-up culture that I'm, I'm trying to soften in this household um, and share ways with them to regulate their emotions that perhaps I was never shown. And as I learn them, they're all equally wet witnessing that. You know, it's not always great. There are some pretty big explosions, you know, and that is like, okay, you, ooh, let's just have that hug and, and uh, come together because that's, all we can do right now and that's all right understanding the emotion that's there we ha we expect way too much from children i think i mean we expect a lot from ourselves as well but we expect way too much de developmentally from children and um really there's a lot of rage anger and aggression that needs to come out of children and be contained for both boys and girls and um and and so that it can make like the emotional life at home very explosive sometimes, you know, learning to hold that for ourselves and not shame ourselves or not shame our children. Because I think it's really a process of becoming more, I mean, emotional maturity is something, I think it's an ongoing life thing forever. And learning to kind of bring those emotions back to a place where we can kind of work with them. Like my children have a lot of stuff that goes on, you know, a lot of um, have different cycles of rage when they're trying to differentiate and separate and individuate more. There's lots of aggression and and I, I wish we talked about that more honesty as well you know that it, it it's not like rupture and repair and containing ourselves is not like some neat oh I'm sorry that I shouted sweetie let's have a big hug and make up there's lots of kind of back and forth and you know lots of it's just messy it doesn't kind of all just land up in a nice little present which we've tied a bow on <laughs> I love the way you said that it's messy yeah it is it's discombobulated <laughs> It's it's so 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 never black and white and 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 you know I I love being the mum of boys but it can be really full on I mean it can be you know, we were talking a bit before weren't we about you know the hormone testosterone now as a woman I don't I don't have a huge amount of that hormone naturally in me so bearing witness to to that in in all of its entirety when all four of them are having a surge of it at the same time can be quite a lot I mean that I have to leave the room at times it's too much too too much for me and that's okay you know I I tell them yeah you need some space I can't deal with this right now this is way too much for me you guys sort it out between you because no, I'm not equipped for this you know that that's all right 
that's okay. But equally recognizing how it will trigger me to a point where I will react in a way that I won't that I won't be proud of. And also that won't be useful in terms of kind of the co-regulation in the whole family. Sophie, I'm just noticing our, our time. How um and wondering about um what else we might want to share about for the people listening, how do you sort of maintain your sanity as a mother of four um dealing with, you know, fighting children and trying to carve out some space for yourself to actually be regulated? How do you like how do you manage in the holidays? What are your kind of what's really helped you, I guess? Good question. <laughs> Looks really different every day. I have to get in my uh, my self care. I have to get in my regulation for. Um, I have little routines that I do in the morning as soon as I wake up. I'm lucky enough that my youngest children are now ten, so they don't come in and need me straight away first thing in the morning. So so I I wake up and I I meditate and I move my body I, uh, in a way that I feel like I need to move. Um, and I do that for a good 40, 45 minutes before I even emerge. You know, I'm lucky that I can do that for sure. I also ensure that I, you know, I, I eat well and I get outside and, and, you know, and we hug a lot. We are very touchy feely. You know, I, I say I am, I'm good for hugs. This is, this is, you know, we, we need this and, we breathe each other in and we do all the things that get the natural hormones going. And when we, when I do that, I do it with intent to take some of that for me as well. So I'm giving them a hug. I'll have it back too. And I've got into the habit of boosting my feel good factor that way. I also am not, I'm not afraid of saying to them, you know, as I said, I notice that I'm feeling really triggered by this right now. I'm not happy with how, I, how this isn't making me feel. And I can see it's not making you feel good either. I've learned that in my trigger times, before my trigger times, which are specific times in the day for sure, like before tea time, for instance, when they're hangry and they need feeding and I'm desperately trying to get the meal on the table and they're like, how long is it going to be? It's constant, like, oh, it's never good. And, and then you put it in front of them and they go, I don't like that, don't want to eat it. <laughs> so I now do things like I, I ground, I check in, I put music on and I dance. And I release, you know, and I, I get back into my body again a bit, out of here and, and into here. And, you know, appreciate, I do a lot of mindfulness practice when I'm cooking. And, and the sensory element of that is good. And so I, I've learned ways to, to deal with that, you know. But it sometimes, what really, really gets me is this constant, it's constant, Mum, mum, mum. The demand, meeting the demands, asking the questions, answering the questions, all, all the time. It's like nonstop, and it does feel like my head's like three sixty Exorcist style. Go, oh, that is so hard for me. Come the end of the day, I just have to literally hold on and breathe, and just okay. And I do that. I say, stop. It's too much. I love you, and I want to hear you, but right now, can you just not ask me any questions? My head's about to explode. And that and they get that. My children are younger than yours. So they don't they're not as good as because uh, I also say to them, I need a question break now. And I'm like, that's enough questions for me. Especially when I'm driving. I'm like, I don't really like driving that much. And I'm like, no more questions. And I think that you touch on such an important point there because we don't need to martyr ourselves and act like we can take everything. Like we have limits. 
and modeling that it's okay to have limits and that we're going to, you can like come back and ask me a question, but not right now. Um, it's such an important thing for our children because then they can be in touch with their own boundaries and know that they're also allowed to put limits down. And if we instead go the other way and think that we have to like sacrifice ourselves on the altar of motherhood, it's not helpful for anyone really. No, no, it isn't. I mean, I think that the, you know, the really challenging thing is with, with, with twins, I've seen this a lot is, is this sort of competition that they have over my attention. And, you know, I'm just really honest with them. When I notice that happening, I call it out and, you know, explain to them what I'm seeing and how we can just take it in turn. So, you know, mum's here. I've got two arms. Luckily, I can, I can hug you both at the same time. And I love you both the same, you know, and I've had, I've had the whole, you know, oh, you don't love me. You don't love me as much as you love him. You don't even like me. You know, I, it's, you know, it's not part of them growing up, really. You know, the, the sadness I feel a lot of the time is how my, my older boys really did lose me for that first year in lots of ways once the, the, the twins were born. You know, not only was I juggling the twins, but, and we'd been in Niku, was it for five weeks to then get home and have that? I don't think we got much sleep or any in that, you know. And 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 it was meeting the demands of these babies all the time, where these two other little boys who were seven and four actually really needed me too. But I was only functional with them, and that that sits with me now. So I, in lots of ways, it's made me very aware that I can still keep healing those ruptures even now. And forgiving yourself. And I do. There's been lots of questions, um, and we don't really have time for this now, I think, but about how can we heal or forgive ourselves for the things we didn't know in early motherhood for when we might have been very tightly holding on to old coping strategies or done practices that we now don't agree with or anything like that. And I think that so much of this is is holding that attachment is a dance and that we are still on the dance floor with our children and we can improve things all the time. And, you know, if when they have children, it's very triggering for them and they look back and wonder about their baby days, we can repair again then. And we can dialogue about that and be so loving about it because we all flawed human beings and we're still lovable. And we can't like, I wish so much. I, I Like I used to really wish to be a perfect mom. You know what I mean? So that there would be nothing that I would get wrong. And I think there's grief in that as well, that we have to be so gentle with ourselves that we, there's no way to be like that. We just can't be. But loving ourselves through that shows our children that they are also lovable when they are not perfect. And I think that's like the most powerful thing ever. We can still be in relational contact, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, in lots of ways, and I know I've had this conversation with my husband several times, is that we want to do things differently in terms of how we were parented. But there are no rules. And that that helps. It does help. But equally, to bring a lot of compassion and forgiveness into the things that we haven't necessarily got right, and then to bring in that lovely you know, sense of this, this presence, this mindfulness, this is where we're at right now, and, and, and to, to just kind of hold on to that in every sensory way as well, that helps to kind of address the balance a little, that we've got this opportunity now as well. To breathe those babies in, even though they're like this high, we can still do it. 
And for them to have that opportunity, you know, even your 17-year-old, you know, or however old he is now, but to have those opportunities of being cradled on your lap, you know, and their head stroked, those things are so healing. I know. Oh, my goodness, I know. I mean, I'm still, I annoy the hell out of him because I still, like, call him. <laughs> but he's, like, this big now. He's really tall. He's very into giving giving me hugs still, and uh, I'm very lucky that that he's never really kind of grown out of that my 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 second son who's about to be 15 is is definitely not into hugs he's very awkward very awkward it's like right um but i find a way i find a way yeah we have to connect with them all differently i guess yes yes exactly now sophie it's time for us to end now i'm conscious of our time before we go is there anything else you'd like to um share with our listeners or something that you think has really helped you that you think might might help? The biggest thing that I think that has helped me, and I think this is the simplest thing that we can all do for ourselves, is to recognize that we are unique and that our story, our narrative is unique and that we're not like anybody else, even if there's similarity. And that if we just take time to check in and heal with ourselves and like kind of be okay with who we are, then that is enough. When we're feeling like you can't do much else other than that, or you really need somebody to hold you and there's nobody there to do that. It's this sense of satisfaction and love that you can give yourself that is bigger than any love that you'll ever receive in any way anyway. And that I think is, you know, if you can do that for yourself, then that's enough in those moments to certainly to help regulate your nervous system a bit more, to maybe then put you in a bit more perspective. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the relationship we have with ourselves is the most important one. Yeah, for those beautiful words. <laughs> and then, of course, to reach out for help, because if you need it and you feel like you can't connect with yourself, then we definitely need to talk. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Kat. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.